It is time to sit underneath the authority of God's word, remembering that the Holy Spirit is our teacher today, and the scriptures are our source of instruction. I invite you to have John 13 in front of you. We are in our third week of the series, Following Jesus to the Cross. In our first week, we prepared our hearts by offering up tears of lament for the brokenness in our world, by bearing ashes of repentance for the sin that too often finds a home in our own hearts, and then by blowing the trumpets of praise and thanksgiving as we shout our hosannas out to the King of Kings. Last week, Tom took us to the story of Jesus' anointing for his burial, to the extravagant worship of Mary. And we saw the ways different people responded to Jesus and how our response can impact others. Today, we're going to jump ahead a few days in that final week leading to the cross. And we come to Thursday. A number of events happened on that day, the preparation of the Passover in the upper room, the celebration of the Passover meal, and the revelation of how that meal was pointing to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. And during that same time, Jesus gives a farewell discourse to prepare the disciples, and he offers up his prayer for them and for us as well. On that evening, they then go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus suffers in prayer. Rich Lewis will be teaching on that uh, section next week. And then the evening ends with his betrayal and arrest. The setting of our passage, as identified in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is an upper room. It does not appear to belong to someone they know, but it was a room apparently available for people to arrange to use. The disciples are told to prepare the room for the Passover meal, and Matthew tells us that the twelve gathered there to celebrate. Jesus is in control of all the events. He is now, even as they gather in the upper room, he's on the threshold of what he has known was coming. He knows that just in a matter of hours he will be betrayed. His friends will abandon him. He'll be whipped to the very edge of death in the most horrendous manner we could imagine. He'll be mocked, humiliated. Finally, he will be executed through crucifixion, a manner of execution designed to inflict the greatest amount of pain stretched over the longest possible time. And he has determined to keep his appointment with those things. And to add even more, the unthinkable, the part that we can't even get a hold of, while all this happens, he'll be bearing the full weight and burden and penalty for all the sin and all the brokenness in all the world for all time. Where would your mind be at a time like that? What would you be thinking about? What would you do as you awaited and anticipated those horrible hours? Most of us have probably had a time where we had a difficult meeting coming up or a conversation scheduled and we knew it was gonna, not going to go well. Perhaps a, a surgery was coming or a treatment or a procedure and we, was, we knew it was going to be painful. And we were completely preoccupied with it. It becomes hard to even function or think of anything else. We become totally absorbed by it. I've probably shared this experience before. Going to the dentist growing up was not a good experience for me. I didn't drink pop. Rarely did we have sweets at home. I faithfully brushed my teeth 
And yet I would go to the dentist again and again and again, and there would be another cavity and another one and another one. If you saw the inside of my mouth, you'd be amazed. I could probably sell the silver in there and retire. The other thing about my dentist, and I thought it was normal, was there was no painkiller given for drilling teeth. No Novocaine, nothing. And it did not feel good. I recall specifically one visit. It must have been about ninth grade. Came out of the room uh, where I had had my teeth checked, and my mom was there, and the dentist told her that I had six cavities, and I had to come back next week to have them drilled. I remember holding it together until we got in the car, and then I just started crying. And that whole next week, I could think of nothing else, just anticipating the terrible day that was quickly coming. And I just wanted to hide in my bed and not come out. Yet what a small matter that is. As we consider Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. They're having a meal. The disciples are clueless about what is about to happen. We even discover that they're arguing about who is greatest. And here's Jesus sitting with the one he knows has arranged for his arrest. And with all this is about to happen, what is on Jesus' mind? What is he thinking about? What does he do? The scriptures say that for the joy set before him, that's us, he endured the cross. And we see in the upper room that he is concerned about the disciples in the midst of that. So he prepares them for what is to come. He's mindful of us in the future, the new community that will be formed. So he, he prays for them and for us. And then in this utterly amazing act, with all this coming down on him and all these other things on his mind and the anticipation of what's about to happen, that's not what's on his mind. Instead, he washes the feet of the disciples. Jesus, our mighty God, in an act of complete selflessness, serves. All things have been put into his hands. And what does he do? He picks up a towel and a basin. So let's take a look a bit closer. We're first told what Jesus knows. Our passage said several things. It said, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and then it said he loved them to the end. Verse 3 says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God and was going back, and verse 11 says, he knew who was betray him. So what did he know? He knew his hour had come. This was the moment. He knew and was determined to love sacrificially. He knew suffering would come before glory. He knew who and when he would be betrayed. He knew that all things were in his power, in his hands, in his control. He knew what he had come to do, and he was fixed upon that path. He was firm in his unity with the Father, and it is the knowledge of those truths and others that forms the foundation that enables Jesus to complete and to do what he needed to do. For us as well, if we understand that God loves us, that we belong to him, that his kingdom ways are the way to live, that we are unshakable in our relationship with him, from that foundation and from that foundation only, we too can do the things he calls us to do, no matter the cost, and to especially in humility, love, and serve each other. Next, we're told what Jesus does. Verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does he do? Jesus serves. In most homes and gatherings, a Gentile servant was given the humbling task of washing the feet of the household when they arrived home or of guests when they visited. On rare occasions, a host might do that. Part of their preparation the disciples should have done was arranging for a servant to take care of the washing of everyone's feet when they came through the door. People were in sandals, their feet would be dirty and smelling, covered in the grime that they had walked in all day. It was the first step in taking a deep breath at the end of the day and finding rest and refreshment at the end of a day of labor. And I know you've all heard from me before, but that's what bath time is for for me. I love it. Even better when the bath has bubbles in it. And it helps mark the end of the labor of my day, and it just settles me into rest. But there was no preparation for that here in the story. It didn't happen. Having their feet washed as they entered would have been a daily routine. Its absence would have been immediately known and recognized. I wonder what they thought as they all arrived, and they immediately realized they had forgotten to arrange for their feet to be washed. I wonder if any of them thought, maybe I should do it doesn't appear to be the case. And I s- expect that they probably just pretended like nobody noticed and hoped that Jesus wouldn't comment on it. You might recall another time Jesus was in the house of a Pharisee in Luke 7. Tom referenced it last week. A woman comes in and bows down at his feet and anoints his feet and washes them with her tears. And then Jesus tells a story to the Pharisee and commends the woman for her faith. But then he rebukes the Pharisee because it had dishonored Jesus by not providing water for Jesus to wash his feet. And the story that Jesus told lets us see that the problem in the Pharisee's heart was ingratitude and a lack of humility. Well, Jesus is going to show us something very different than that. So what happens? Well, we just saw it. Jesus takes the role of a servant. In complete humility, he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet, the feet of workers and fishermen, the disciples, I imagine they were embarrassed and shocked when they realized what he was doing, of all people. Philippians 2 says, in humility we should count others as better than ourselves. Jesus did that. Philippians 2 goes on to say that he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and served all the way to the point of the death. The creator of the universe, the ruler of all, Jesus, he did that. 1 Peter 5 says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Why? Because that's what God does. That's what God does. Just a brief word about this exchange between Peter and Jesus that happens in this passage. Peter's clearly uncomfortable. Perhaps he's looking at Jesus down at his feet and washing him. Maybe Peter becomes aware of his own pride and lack of humility. Gets revealed in his heart. Jesus in verse 8 says, You must be washed. The word for wash here actually is a word that's used to refer to the washing of the whole body. And it's likely a reference to the cleansing from sin we receive at salvation. But then later in verse 10, when Peter says, You can wash all of me, Jesus uses a different word and refers to just washing part of the body. Likely because as believers, we're already saved, but we do daily need 
to confess and cast aside the sins of our day and the grime that we pick up along the way. All that would be in keeping with Exodus 29.4 where when a priest was first anointed to the priesthood, he, he was uh, washed all over. But then after that, we see in Exodus 30.18-21, when they did their daily service, they would wash daily but just their hands and feet before coming before the altar. Perhaps part of the lesson Jesus is giving Peter is that he needs to join Jesus in this act of serving. So we've seen what Jesus knew. We saw what he did. Now what did he teach? Well, verse 12 through 17 makes it really clear. They're to love and to serve like Jesus. As servants of one another, they're to live in humility before one another. He says, as you've seen me, do you need to do the same thing? If this is what God is like, their teacher and Lord and master, then for sure it must be the mark of our living as well. Jesus had said earlier, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. We're to do the same. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's actually really simple and clear, isn't it? Love and serve one another in the same way Jesus did, sacrificially, in humility. But we resist it, don't we? Even in this gathering, we discover in Luke 22 that the disciples have an argument about who's the greatest. So Jesus asks them a question. He says, who is the greatest, the one reclining at the table or the one who is serving? And then he answers his own question. He says, well, it's the one who reclines. But then he drops this declaration on them. He says, but I am among you as one who serves. Andrew Murray wrote, humility is the only soil in which the graces take root and grow. The lack of humility is a sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. If there is any way that we would best demonstrate and display Jesus to the world, it's through our love and service for one another as well as for our neighbor. So what about us, especially in these trying days? Will we display Jesus to one another in our world? We can do so only as we in humility, love, and serve one another, and love and serve our neighbors. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Can we not also sacrificially love and serve one another as well in the comparatively very small ways that he daily invites us into? The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us, and his desire is to display the Lord and his kingdom through us. There's no better way to display it than through our service and our love for one another. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, our teacher, Lord, master, 
On earth you washed the feet of your disciples, and now through your cross and resurrection you live to make intercession for us. So give us grace to be your faithful disciples and servants to our lives' end. For your namesake and for your renown we pray that. Amen.